This podcast is brought to you by House of Macadamias. I love macadamia nuts. They are incredibly good for you. They're the healthiest nut on a pound for pound basis, but they've always been hard to find and frankly, very expensive. House of Macadamias changes all that by going directly to farmers in South Africa to take the best nuts directly from each harvest. They turn them into incredible products, chocolate dip macadamias, protein bars, you name it. They taste incredible. I live off these products on a day-to-day basis. I'm a huge fan. Go to houseofmacadamias.com backslash Noah, use the code NOAH20 and you won't be disappointed. Welcome to the Uncharted podcast. Uncharted is a community of some of the world's best entrepreneurs, founders, investors, creatives, and beyond. At our dinners and at our annual summit in New York, we have dialogues with people who are truly at the top of their game across every industry. This podcast is designed really to offer the world and the audience a peek into the magical conversations that happen behind closed doors at our events, and more importantly, a peek into the brains of people who are truly at the top of their game. My goal with every guest is that if you know them well, you'll hear them talk about something or say something they've really never said before, and if you've never heard of them, you'll know exactly what makes them such a badass by the time the episode is over. Welcome to Uncharted. We're glad you're here. Kevin Gould, super good to have you here, brother. Uh, We first met at South by in, I think, 2018. Shout out to Connor Blakely for introducing us, and we've stayed in touch as we're both in very different phases of our life now. But I want to fill the audience in for those who may not know Kevin's story and what he's all about. You were Jake Paul's first ever manager. You started as a talent agent, Billy Morris. And we're sort of one of the OG creator, YouTuber, managers, agents who helped put Jake and Logan on the map. And you did that for quite some time with a ton of success. And you've pivoted and now you run multiple brands that are doing multiple eight figures in revenue. And I think Glamnetic, I hope I'm not wrong, Glamnetic is is sort of the flagship in the portfolio, was one of, if not the fastest to $50 million in history, all through e-com, which is just a Herculean effort. And I think you did it in like one year. It was a wild year. Which is a wild year. So I want to touch on, obviously, the uncharted audience. We have business executives, we have founders, we have investors, people who know e-com very well. You are as well-versed as anyone in the e-com world, and now you're expanding into distribution. I want to start with your story with Jake Paul, because he has obviously gone through multiple cycles of hero, villain, and everything in between to multiple people. How did this? How did it play out? Like, how did you yeah. find Jake Paul? What's the OG story of how this happened? Well, I guess let me maybe I'll take a little bit of a step back. So I uh, I started my career actually in the mailroom at WME, the talent agency. Which, by the way, it was incredible to see when I was there. It was literally just a talent agency, and then yesterday they obviously announced the um, UFC, the UFC WWE merger, insane. which it just kind of goes to show what can happen in the span of twelve years yeah. because it went from a talent agency to a you know, a, a media conglomerate, yeah. um, experiential conglomerate. So that was really cool. But it started in the mailroom at WME, um, and, then be- and then I became an assistant. I actually never made agent at WME. Wow. I was an assistant for three years. So I always tell people, I'm like, look, like, you need to grind it out. Um, and, you know, your first couple of years and in, in whatever you do, sometimes it's going to be a grind. I worked for a number of different agents when I was there. But I was on the traditional talent side. And this was right when influencers were starting to come up. What year is this? This is like 2009, I think, through, through, through 2012, like okay. sometime in that time You're frame. You right and out of school. Right out of school. Um, I was like 22, I think, at the time. And then towards the end of that, towards 2012, that's when like influencers were really starting to come about. Like yeah. YouTube was popping up. Um, and so I took like a really 
big interest in the influencer ecosystem. And there were, so there were two things I was super interested in. One was the influencer ecosystem. Mm -hmm. The other was the convergence of Silicon Valley and the entertainment world. So while I was at WME, I started emailing all of these VC funds and founders up in Silicon Valley and saying, hey, I work at WME, I'm on the entertainment side. How can I help you? So on Fridays after WME would, uh, would end, I would fly up to San Francisco and spend the weekend there and take all these meetings. And I, I eventually realized, wow, there's this like huge disconnect between Silicon Valley and Hollywood. They didn't know how to talk to each other. I think there's an opportunity here. So I ended up leaving WME and for years, I ended up running a company that had kind of two components to it. One was I was the guy that was the bridge between Silicon Valley and Hollywood. My model was that I would um, I would obviously take a retainer from these companies, but I would then take sweat equity, and then I started realizing, wow, super hard to get into these companies as an investor. Which companies? You mean like the tech companies? The tech Silicon companies. And, and then I'll kind of tie this back to how eventually how I get to Jake. But um, so I, you know, I was that guy that kind of, that's how I eventually parlayed it into uh, taking all the money I was making on the consulting side with my business and then throwing it back as an angel investor. That was one side of the business. The other side was, close to the you know ties to the entertainment side, managing these different influencers. So I managed a lot of different influencers over the years. Cut to, um, I think it was probably 20, 2016 when I got to know Jake. I think he was like 17 or 18 years old. Um, met him out and about. The first time I met him, I was like, wow, this, uh, for being so young, this guy has a real vision for where he wants to go. And uh, an insane work ethic, and at the time, the concept of what he had with Team 10, I thought was super intriguing and interesting. And so we honestly met, and then we kept in touch for probably six months to a year. And then we reconnected one day, and I think like at the time, um, we both found things that were uh, super synergistic. Like I had this interesting background that was a blend between the talent side, but also brand building and investing. And then Jake had, um, you know, Jake had this vision of like what he wanted to build with his career in Team 10 and building brands and assets. And so um, we ended up partnering up. I uh, started managing him in, I don't want to get the year wrong, but I think it was 2016 um, when he was 18 years old. And it was at the height of, you know, the everyday, it's everyday, bro. Um, peak Jake Paul. Peak Jake OG, Paul. Yeah. Um, I never managed Logan. Logan has a separate manager. I think both are equally um, impressive in terms of like what they've been able to yeah. do with their careers. But uh, it was such a fun ride managing him for uh, you know two years at the height of of Team Ten. How did you go from assistant to like actually having enough mix of conviction and cash to start whatever that first company was? So I think I was a little naive on the, uh, on, yeah, I think you have to sometimes be a little naive when you start a company, right? So uh, from my perspective, I think from a cash perspective, you don't make any money as an assistant at WME. Right. So from uh, from my perspective, I was like, what's the worst that now, can happen? Basically I'm not making, anyway, yeah. Like, so for anyone that, that doesn't understand like working as an assistant or working in the mailroom at one of the big talent agencies, it's a lot like investment banking where you get your ass kicked, except in investment banking, at least you come out of it with a good paycheck. Right. The difference in the entertainment business, at least at the time, was the scraps. you got your ass kicked, but then you also didn't make any money. Right. So for me, the the the, the cost of actually leaving wasn't like I was giving up a real right. salary. And because it was really just me when I started, there there wasn't, um, I didn't have any carrying costs. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the business today, we have 100 plus employees. There's a lot of carrying costs. There wasn't any carrying costs in the beginning. No, it was right. me and, you know, me and um, me, myself and I, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. 
Um, and so from a cash perspective, that wasn't, that wasn't an issue. And then from a conviction perspective, I don't know, I think I was always super entrepreneurial. I went into WME and I, I learned so much and gained so many relationships from being there. Yeah. Um, but I felt like I had identified a gap in the market where like at WME at the time, there was one person that was on the digital department. Now their digital department's a hundred people. Wow. Um, but at the time they're just, it was so early that mm. I thought, uh, I, I originally thought I wanted to be a talent agent. And and then I realized it's a lot like working in a big corporation. You can't just like, you know, be an assistant. Then you have to become a junior agent. Then become a covering agent where you cover other people's clients. Then you start signing your own clients. And so it's like working your way up the corporate ladder, um, even from the agency world. And so I think I saw this gap in the space with the influencer market. And I said, look, this is my chance. This is my shot. And, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Who was your first client on that business? Um, it was actually... Uh, not a typical YouTuber. She had a YouTube show at the time. Her name was Jessie Draper, who was Tim Draper's daughter. Tim um, the Draper, venture the VC? Yeah, venture capitalist, no right? Shit. Um, and I actually read some, actually, by the way, she's created such an amazing career for herself yeah. now. She's She's got um, uh, a fund that is doing absolutely incredible things called Halogen Ventures. But at the time, she had a show called the uh, the Valley Girl Show, where she interviewed really top entrepreneurs um, in the, uh, in the Valley. And I thought there was like this really incredible show there and personality to build around, uh, Silicon Valley at the time. So she was actually the first client I had. Hmm. Um, and then I parlayed that into a lot of other, um, YouTubers, um, and you, that, were, you were managing her. Yeah, I was managing her. And so your, yeah. your business model was you were getting Silicon Valley companies to advertise pretty much with her. Um, and that's where you mo made most yeah, of the cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the typical typical brand deals we would do. So for her in particular, um, it was integrating these brands into partnerships with right. her or into partnerships with the show. The other side of the business, though, was I was rep representing the companies, sure. right? And I, and they were the actual clients. So I kind of had this split business where one side was talent representation, and yeah. the other side again was like consulting, yeah, consulting and working with these companies, and that allowed me to continue to gain this interesting perspective after WME of again, like it's a unique beast in itself yeah. by you know managing talent. Sure. Um, and then, you know, working with these companies, I think I, I gained the operational expertise that allowed me to, you know, get to what I ended up doing today. 2012-ish roughly was when you were doing, starting this out. Yeah, 2012, so 20, yeah, 2013. The, the universe of brand deals and how to structure those was much more nascent than it is now. Right oh. now there's a ton of precedent for how these things should work. At the time, how were you navigating? Like, how do I even charge for this? How does yeah. Jesse make money? Like, what's the, yeah. were the brands resistant to it? I mean, man, I felt like I was like educator in chief of educating these brands on the value of working Power with influencers digital. and talent. Right. And, and obviously everyone, it's all caught up now and everyone knows the Mr. Beast of the world right. and, and the big brands had buy-in, yeah. but that's back when like, you know, brands were barely on Instagram, right? right? So they were just getting up to speed on social. And then I was trying to like, you know, move and position these brands into working with talent and creators. And so it was, the deals were a lot smaller at mm. the time, right? Like uh, they were a lot more hesitant to spend real dollars. What did um, a good contract look like? Like what's a win dub? Like what's a dub for your early days with Jesse? Oh man, I mean, you know, we'd be doing, it could be like a 10 to 25 to $50,000 deal, right? Yeah. Like, and um, you'd spread it out across different types of content. That was the same, not just for like a Jesse, that was the same everyone. for everyone at yeah. the time, right? right? Like for a brand to spend $25,000 on a creator at the time, it was a lot of money, right? Because right. they were used to all the traditional 
advertising platforms and print and everything else they were doing. Um, and so at the time the deals were small, I'd say like when it really progressed where they started spending real money was probably, it took, I think it took until like 2016, 2017 where real dollars from brands started yeah. to flow in the, in the space. I think when I was managing Jake and Team 10, there was, you know, there were sizable brand yeah, yeah, deals yeah. happening, but there was a four or five year period where it was a lot of, um, it was just a lot of just educating. Um, that ed four or five year period, I'm sorry to cut you off, was basically from the time that you started this new bit. What was the business called? Uh, it actually, I started and it was called Startup Agency and then I pivoted it and nice. I changed it. <laughs> then, then it actually changed Startup to, Agency? Yeah, Startup Agency. Wow. I was like working with these startups at the time. Then I was like, okay, this, you know, this name isn't gonna work. So yeah. then I pivoted Hard it to- Hard to do to, SEO for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I pivoted the name to plus one ventures. Then I got hit with the cease and desist because nice. there was another company that yeah. had a similar name. So that lasted a month. Nice. And then I landed on Combo Ventures. Combo, and and so, yeah, I've had Combo now for a really long time. It's, I think like any business, it's taken different um, iterations sure. over the years. Like what it started as is so much different than I think what it is now. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, it's been, you know, Combo Ventures for a long time. When you, um, when you start working with Jake in 2016, what are those early days like of you guys just saying, all right, let's do this together, let's make this happen? Like, what are your first steps that you take when you start managing Jake Paul at that time? Yeah, well, I think I think the hardest thing at the time was how quick his life was moving, mm. right? The, the 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 it's every day, bro, of posting a video every single day just so someone could get a a sense of like his work ethic at the time, but also just how intense this was, right? To post a YouTube video every day, this is this is what happens. You wake up in the morning, uh, generally he would scope out the content for the day. And I think at the time his channel was a blend of real life and a blend of elevated reality, right? So, pranks and- Yeah, pranks. Um, you know, it was like semi, you know, semi-real, semi-scripted, and it was hard to tell the two, the difference of the two, but what it took was a lot of creativity. So imagine every day you're having to create a concept for the day mm -hmm. with, a lot of times like really crazy thing happening, like a tiger shows up at the house, or right. like, it's not just like normal videos. Um, shoots all day, has breaks in between, and as a, as a creative, I think the hardest part for him or any other creative was what, what it takes to, to have a creative brain is different than what it takes to have a business brain. So imagine filming for hours, being super creative, and then having to take a break in the middle and take a business meeting and talk about how we're gonna build a brand or whatever it may be, right? So the day consisted of shooting content for the video for the next day, taking meetings in the middle, that would end at seven or eight at night. The content then would get kicked to an editor in the UK. Uh, the UK editor would work on it overnight, would wake up in the morning, review the video, the video would go up, wouldn't even watch the video after it goes up, and then on to the next video. Wow. And that was like that for the 100, you know, 150 plus days, I forgot how many days it was, but it was like, it was, I feel like it was almost an entire year of content every day. Wow. And so it was incredibly grueling, but it, I think Jake and Logan, um, you know, there were some other creators in the space at the time, like really innovated the model and, and like pushed the speed of content out much quicker. And so that was really cool to cool to see and be there a part was of. a sixty minutes piece I think that happened in like twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen that I think was at the peak of this where I remember this and 
I was not even in business at the time. I'm too young. But I remember that moment seeing that when I was, I think, in college of like, wow, this this thing has arrived. Like influencer marketing now is on 60 Minutes. They're talking yeah. about Jake Paul and the merchandise conglomerate that he's yeah. built that was moving real revenue. Um, were there moments that you had? Because you were this is you're managing him while this is playing out, where it's like, yeah. oh shit, this is real. Like this is this is big scale. This isn't just like a twenty five thousand dollar yeah check from a little brand anymore. This is like we're on 60 Minutes now. Yeah. Were there other moments when you're like, oh shit, like this is really picking up i mean i think you can think about just even like the scale of you know the scale of the merch businesses for creators and and i think like the brand building side for creators has taken different evolutions and i think the low-hanging fruit in the beginning was the merch business mm. but i mean at the height of the height of uh everything i mean you wouldn't the, the numbers on like the merchandise side of the business were in you know just unbelievable and that really validated the scale right. and i think the uh, the power that creators have. And then I think also like we, you know, we did a couple, like we did a pop-up in, you know, New York, we did a pop-up in LA. And when you see, you know, thousands and thousands of people show up in real life, that really puts things into perspective um, on, on just like how much, again, like how much pull these creators have. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's weird. Cause like when you're, when you're in it, you think about it, but Obviously, like being, you know, being out of it for a little while and reflecting back. I mean, there were some really like cool and incredible moments that um, I think I'm always going to remember. What um, were you the one driving those? Like, were you driving the merch line? Was that under your guys? There was, there was actually a, a way to partner on that business um, called Fanjoy, which is actually still in business yeah, today. They yeah. do this great guy, Chris, um, who is the CEO of Fanjoy. They do the merch for a lot of different creators. So Jake's business at the time had such scale that there was like a real cohesiveness between his internal team, Jake's internal team, um, and then Fanjoy because it was a really, you know, pretty sizable business. Sure. Um, but they did all of the back end at right. the time. Um, and so they were doing, you know, the whole back end merch. So whereas today I'm obviously running, you know, we'll talk probably talk about it a little bit. I'm running yeah. brands that yeah. were running everything. Um, at the time, Fanjoy was basically the business that we partnered with to do all the merch. And um, I think it makes sense for merch, right? Like I think, yeah. you know, if a creator wants to create their own merchandise, it's probably better to outsource it. I, I always use this like acronym called Leo, which is for an influencer, it's like, do you license, do you endorse, or do you own, right? Mm. And you kind of have to pick mm. which ones you're gonna go down the path on. And Love that there's only like one or two things you probably want to like go deep and own, right? And the other things you should license out or partner up or have someone that has a better, um, you know, better skill set or better competitive advantage of you take that. And I think merch is one of those categories you should just outsource. Sure. What was the scale of that operation, the merch? At its peak? I mean, it was doing, you know, mid eight figures a year. In, wow. And in, in merch. Just sweatshirts and t-shirts. Hoodies, and sweatshirts. I think what, I think what, um, worked really well was all of the drops, right? It was yeah. a very drop-driven business. And yeah. so, um, you know, FOMO, pushing like FOMO, pushing exclusivity, um, it, it was it was a wild, wild ride. Talk about every good entrepreneur has the story of like, I was doing X, Y, Z, and I extracted these key nuggets of wisdom and key parts of alpha and, I mean, what you're describing with Jake and eight figures of mid eight figures of revenue and merch and the creative yeah. and it's clearly influenced what you're doing now in many yeah. ways. T talk about what you learned specifically from that experience and then how Glamnetic and INH came about. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing was just like the 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 real to have a firsthand view of the 
you know, I've obviously, again, been involved in the influencer ecosystem for a long time, but I think with, there's moments in time in any industry, right? And I think if you think about, if you go back to the early days of the influencer world, there's, you know, some of the early pioneers in the space. And then you had kind of like stage two, which I would put like the Jakes of the world in that, um, Jakes and the Logans in that category. And then now you've kind of got like the Mr. Beasts and the Emma Chamberlains and the, and the Addisons, the next gen. Um, but it was, I think for me, it was just a takeaway of the power and scale mm. that influences that really develop a strong, um, you know, following and community can have if they put the hard work in. And I think that everything I've learned, I don't think it's any one thing. I think everything I've learned in the influencer space has led me to what I'm building today with the brands that I have yeah. because it's such a, I think it's such a big competitive advantage to like understand how the influencer ecosystem works and then parlay that into the brand building and the community building that goes with building a brand. Because the community building that goes around an influencer and an influencer building their community is very similar to what a brand needs to do, right? Like a brand has um, its own vibe, its own voice, it's, um, you know, it, it's gotta be in touch with its community lot of crossover between an influencer and a brand and the brands that do it right are obviously influential right right so let's talk about how glamnetic came to be it's an inc- it's an incredible business right it's one i don't know beauty that well right i know booze but there's a lot of similarity i think between booze, the two booze and beauty man yeah very similar exactly it's all you need right exactly that's the keys exactly. to life talk about the origin how did you have the idea i know Anne is your partner she's obviously very involved yeah. in the business and it's the face of it in many ways yeah um how did it happen what's the or it's the origin story yeah so i'll cut cut back a little bit so one of the companies i invested in um pretty early on uh and was and was working with um was beautycon and sure. beautycon at the time back in like 2014 2016 um was think of it as like super bowl meets coachella of beauty so you get all these big beauty brands, you get all the indie brands, the cool indie up and coming beauty brands, yeah. and then you'd get influencers and consumers all in one place, LA Convention Center, Javits Center, wherever it may be, it would be one or two days of this really incredible beauty festival. And I remember going to the, the, mm. the festival and it was just this incredible experiential moment and I was like, holy shit. Wow. I was like, wow, the beauty space is massive. I wasn't. I'm still not a you know a consumer necessarily of, right. of beauty products, but I think I had an appreciation for the space and an appreciation for like the community that was driven around it. So I kind of kind of like parked that in the back of my head, right? Because then I was managing Jake for a few you know a few years in between, hmm. um, and then I really wanted to start. You know, I've been kind of like thinking for a few years. Look, I want to start building my own brands. I want to start building you know assets because. Look, the amazing thing about managed talent management, right? It's or any service business. It's a great cash business, right? Yep. But it's hard to build, um, you know, a real brand yep. and build brand equity yep. from it. And so, I, you know, been thinking about that for a while. And I met these two girls at BeautyCon, who at the time were the first two employees of this brand called ColourPop Cosmetics, which is a huge beauty brand. Um, and this, I, you know, met them a couple years ago at BeautyCon, and so I was like, you know what? I wonder what they're up to. And so. I DM them one day, their names are Sharon and Jordan, and I said, hey, let's go to dinner. So this is in mid-2018. Um, we go out to dinner, and I said, look, if you guys could build a brand in the beauty space, what would it be? And like, where do you think you can find differentiation? And we started talking about the hair category because we thought color cosmetics, which they were coming from, was really tapped. And um, you know, we thought hair was super interesting. I did a little bit of research on it and I came back to him and I said, look, like, I think there's really something here. Hmm. Are you guys down to do this? Um, 
they said yes. And then we created um, INH Hair, which is actually the first brand I launched at the end of 2018. Insert name here. That's yeah. Insert name here, INH Hair for short. Um, and we created that at the end of 2018. And that started with actual like hair, hair extensions. We've since moved a lot heavier into hair, hot tools, hair care, more of a 360 hair brand that's, yeah. um, you know, split nicely between D2C and we've got Ulta and a few other retailers. And then in 2019, the goal was at the time was, you know, not just to build one brand to kind of like build a few brands. Hold co. Yeah, yeah, kind of a hold co at the same time, but do it. I never really used the word incubate with the brands because I, I like I I wanted to make sure the brands really st- you know stood alone and I was also deeply involved I'm still deeply involved in like building the brands um, so I'll kind of get to the whole co piece in a second but I we had a photo shoot for INH and Anne who's my partner on Glamedic showed up at the photo shoot and she had she was starting to develop Glamedic. And she wanted to learn how photo shoots work. So I meet her at the shoot. She tells me about Glamedic and she's like building this, this lash brand. I was like, wait, there's definitely something here. And I said, we should really talk about partnering up. Um, and then, yeah, and then kind of the rest is history. We partnered mm-hmm. up from there. Glamedic launched in July of 2019. Um, and then, yeah, it's been a, it's been a crazy last, um, last few years. Glamedic, just so for anyone listening, we're really heavy on um, the mission is around saving customers time, money, and effort, particularly on like DIY beauty and their beauty routine. We started with magnetic lashes. We've moved really heavy into two core categories, lashes and press on nails. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're continuing to expand from there. And the brand now is in you know Ulta, Sephora, um, all the Sephora's inside Kohl's. We've got a ton of other retail distribution lined up. Um, and yeah, I, I love the beauty space, man. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I have a feeling that for the people that are listening and and watching this, the most alpha that they're going to learn is going to be in the actual stories of how this all got started. And like, you know, the growth that you've experienced is insane, right? To go from zero to 50 million in a year, it's just like, that just doesn't happen, right? So it's even to manage that operationally. But let's start with INH, the hair product, just, just for the sake of the conversation. Your first dinner with those two girls, Jordan, who I've actually met and Sharon, um, what are the actual steps when you say, okay, we want to do hair extension products, right? Yeah. I, I, this is so not my space, so I apologize yeah. about this, but it's clip-on hair, right? Yep. Which, yep. Is, which is a space, apparently. Yep. Clearly, I'm not a user. Yeah. Um, how do you think about sourcing? How did you find the first supplier? How did you think about margin profile? Yeah. How did you fund the business? How did you, yeah. like, Facebook ads? Is that your source? Like, walk us through all that. Cool. So, lots of, lots to unpack yeah. there. Those are all great questions. So, when we started... Um, I think what Sharon and Jordan had was a deep understanding of the community of influencers, of social, of content, of creative. So they had that side covered. And then I kind of go back to being like a little bit naive about anything that you start, right? Um, Everything in hindsight, you're like, wait, I could have done this so much better or whatever. But um, I remember I walked into like a beauty convention looking for uh, hair, you know, hair, hair manufacturers, hair vendors at the time. And I was there with like my um, head of ops and we walked in. We started talking to these hair vendors and I literally remember walking out and I looked at him. I go, we need to find someone to help us here. We don't know what the fuck we're doing. Mm. Um, and so that night I went on LinkedIn and I was like, I need to find someone that's an expert in uh, the PD process of hair. Um, I found someone. What's PD? 
uh, product, product development, right? Product so, job, yeah. you know, I, I think you have to, you need to know what you are and what sure, you are, right? Sure, I sure. am not a product developer, and particularly in a category that I don't use the product yeah. in. And I think Sharon and Jordan knew that that's not them, right? Yeah. They're great at creative content social. Yeah. And so uh, the, the first thing I did was find an amazing um, head of product development who is still with us today. And we sat, we had a meeting. Um, she said, are you ready to do this? I said, are you ready to do this? And then we went on a plane to Asia three weeks later. And we went to the factories. We spent um, a few few days um, in very rural Asia mm. at the factories. Um, and then we, three months later, had a product and we, we launched. From a funding perspective, so I funded the uh, the businesses uh, operate a little bit differently. So INH is a little bit more capital intensive because hair from a cost perspective is just a very expensive category. Sure. I use my personal funds to fund that business wow. and put in a pretty good chunk of money into INH to fund the business. Glammedic, um, I think had the benefit of uh, lashes are smaller, easy to ship. Um, there's not like different colors and lengths. And so the skew count's a little bit more limited, so it's not as capital intensive. So that business did not take as much capital, but INH was actually really capital intensive. And you self-funded it. Self-funded it, yeah. And that's and, a fairly, it's a substantial amount of cash that you're putting in Yeah, I mean, I put, I put a very significant amount of my money in the business. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, look, may, may, I had I had conviction, maybe, um, I think people from the outside looking in, when they look at like startups will always say like, that's a huge risk. And yeah. I think it is. Yeah. But I think for me, I feel like I've de-risked it based on all of the collective experience that I've built over the years along with, I think, putting in the work to think through all the angles. And again, there's still incredible risk there. Sure. But for me, I you know, wanted to bet on myself and um, I felt like it was, I think gambling is, is risky, right? I don't gamble anymore. I sure. used to gamble when I was younger in Vegas. I was like, wait, I'm losing money every time. That's risk to me. This is still risk, but at least it's a calculated risk. Sure, sure. Um, and I, th I think to go back to your point yeah. on growth, right? So look, I think the whole zero to 50 story on Glammedic, um, I think it was a lot of things we did right, but I also think there was luck involved, right? So we really hit it in 2020. And in 2020, obviously COVID hit, um, all the retailers shut down, D2C experienced a massive, um, massive uh, tailwinds in the category. The big advertisers dropped out on Facebook. I think we were lucky that we were really strong at, at you know, uh, growth marketing, Facebook ads, and was incredible on cranking out content and creative. Um, and so I think it was a mix of having an, having a, an innovative product, um, you know, being really strong at creative content community, all the things you need for the flywheel of marketing. And I think a little bit of luck because, yeah. um, you know, I mean, if you ask any consumer brand the last 18 months, uh, they're getting their ass kicked, yeah. right? Like, the business profile for most of these consumer brands has shifted a lot where D to C has been pretty rocky the last 18 months for everyone. And every brand is trying to diversify into retail and Amazon. But at the time when we launched, right, right place, right time, hard work, good at, I think, enough things to make it happen. Um, and I think it was a mix of all those things. Where are you, uh, where are you focusing now in growth, right? In tw it's 2023, April 2023, we're in a post iOS 14 world. Yep. Markedly different from when you launched Glamnetic, right? Yeah. So may, you could argue, I know you well enough to know that you have the talent to do this anyway, but like you definitely caught a moment. You caught a tiger yeah. by the tail. 
you had a good product, you had it was the right category, it's yep. the right time. So a good mix of things that allows you to 50 million. How are you thinking about growth right now? What's your channel mix now? I know retail's a big part of it. Talk us through that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think fortunately for us, we were able to parlay the massive brand awareness that we built on the D2C side yeah. into a diversified channel mix. And I think five years ago, you would ask all these D2C brands like, oh, we don't need retail. Yeah. Completely changed, totally. right? I think, look, you've seen, uh, we were talking about earlier, right? You saw Glossier going to Sephora, which I think is going to be a big moment for them after they had some troubles. Yep. I think every D2C brand has realized that if you're going to put a bunch of digital ad dollars to work, it's better to be distributed across multiple places. So I think that's where the rise of omnichannel is really important. And so for us, we're we're a pretty split business now between D2C, retail, um, you know, and Amazon makes up a healthy percentage of the business. And I think from a growth perspective, I think that product roadmap is so incredibly important. I think a lot of times founders, when they start a business, you started either out of passion or you see an opportunity or, um, you know, you start, you start a business for a variety of reasons, sure. but as you move down farther down, you know, two years out, three years out, four years out, um, you have, you start to have a lot more like data and analytics. And so the business has shifted from, I'd say like in the beginning, it's a hundred percent instinct, right? Cause you don't have any data to go off of maybe some right. like Tam or what's the market size or whatever. Um, and then now we've shifted a lot more into trying to make sure we're really being thoughtful about what is the future next two or three years of the business look like and how right. do we back into a thoughtful product roadmap that ties into what the mission of Glamedic is or what INH is, um, but also has a big enough TAM, works across multiple um, channels, whether it be D2C or retail or Amazon. Um, and so you have to put a, a different level of thoughtfulness into the business. So putting a lot of attention there. And then I think for me, I'm spending a lot of time with the senior leaders of the team now, trying to just make sure we're on the same page and rowing in the same direction. Because I think after you know, 12 to 18 months of um, like volatility in the D2C ecosystem, I feel really, I, you know, I think it feels good to like, yeah. you know, have more focus this year. Mm. Are you seeing things stabilize a little bit in D2C? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's had to get more realistic with like what their growth can look like on yeah. D2C. Um, but I, I, I do, but I, I think it really, it, it goes, it's, a, it's on a brand to brand basis. Um, I think that a brand that has been around for a few years that has built brand equity, right? And if they have retail, they can balance out the, you know, the CAC and the cost of D2C, I think it's really hard to start a brand right now. Yeah. A new per, a new founder starting a brand, you either have to come with incredible differentiation, which is hard because lots of categories are commoditized businesses, right? Totally. So you need to come with innovation or differentiation, or you need to come with a massive competitive advantage through an influencer or someone like a Mr. Beast, right? And a Feastables, which has just this like huge competitive advantage um, and shortcut when it comes to marketing that, because uh, otherwise, you, or you need a lot of capital, right? Mm -hmm. You need to be willing to put a lot of dollars to work because it is not cheap to acquire customers. We see this with my fund top shelf. We look explicitly at booze brands, but most brands that launch I say to our LPs and, and to the market, like you see this parabola, right? Where like most are okay. Like they're yeah. going to do okay. And if you're, 
you know, if you have money, you can buy your way to some level of growth, right? If you're smart enough and can make it look pretty, yep. you can buy growth. Some suck. They're just not good. And then there's a very, very small percentage of them that are two standard deviations away from the norm that just have the right mix of, you know, in food, it's right. It's the Mr. Beast of the world in Feastables yeah. or any type of other product that just crushes it. And you almost sometimes can't even diagnose what it just has the X factor, right? Or they have some other thing built in. What are the things that you see working right now? Like people people crushing it. Let's put Glamnetic and INH aside because like, yeah. you invest a lot. What's working for people that's allowing them to be those outlier brands? I mean, I think if you go down like the different points I just brought up again, right? So um, differentiation in product, right? So um, uh, there's a brand called Jolie, which I think yeah. makes like shower heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they have real, it seems like they have some differentiation there. They're doing great. Yeah, I think, um, again, I'm speaking to beauty because I know the beauty space a little bit more. There's a brand called K18, um, which kind of came out with, um, you know, like like a real real science behind yeah. what they're doing with with their hair care line which i think has done a really good job so there's brands that do a great job on like the product differentiation side and then there's the other side which is um a, a like take selena gomez and like rare beauty right yeah. I, I hate just using beauty examples but i'm just so in the well, space well you know the space right. well i think that's I think what you we take, hear like, about. i think you take like rare beauty there's been lots of celebrity brands that have tried to enter the beauty space but I think she, Selena did a great job and her team did a great job of like really tying the story in to who she is and like everything she does. And it was, um, again, like overused word, authentic to her. Um, and they had a massive competitive advantage because she has a super recognizable face. The marketing is her face that you would normally have to pay millions of dollars for is free as a brand. And then they get guaranteed retail distribution through a Sephora or an Ulta. Um, and so I think those are really the two main things is you either have to have unique product differentiation, um, you know, some, some sort of shortcut on the marketing side. And then there's all the other things that are like, that make, that, that definitely help. Like, do you have high gross margins, yeah. right? Do you have strong repeatability? I think like, you don't want to be in a business that's got one and done because it costs a lot to acquire a customer. So if you're if you're paying a lot to acquire and then they don't come back, right. you know what is the business, right? So ideally, you've got um, you know you've got strong repeatability. But I think those are the two main drivers that can set set people apart. Isn't there a, isn't there like a graveyard of beauty brands that have tried to start with celebrities and have failed though? Like I think there's, happen a, all I think the there's a graveyard of lots of categories of brands that have tried to start with celebrities. Yeah. I think beauty is probably the most well-known. Yeah. I, I just think it's, man, I think people, whether it's a, by the way, this goes for if it's a celebrity yeah. or if it's just a, a, a normal yeah. uh, founder, right? There's this aura of starting a brand and this like attractiveness to start a company or a brand. It's really fucking hard, right? And you need to like put five to seven to 10 years of your life into something. And so I think sometimes people think it's a little bit easier um, to launch a brand than it actually is. And they can get it to a certain point, but it's really hard. Like you can get it to a couple million bucks with a celebrity, but it's really hard to get it past that point. And then it takes all the things that you have to do to build a brand. And then even then there's no chance of, or there's no um, surefire chance of, uh, of success, right? So there's, yeah, there's a graveyard, um, if you will, of, of these brands that just didn't work. I'm curious, I was interviewed in a business of fashion about a week ago. Um, actually by a friend of mine who wrote an amazing article, Rachel, and her 
her article was about what beauty brands can learn from booze brands when they try to do celebrity. And sort of the thesis of my quote in the article that we kind of jammed on to get to where it was presentable was that booze brands, although there's a lot of booze brands that fail with celebrities, they're not trying to like sell you that The Rock is like in the tequila fields actually like they do the photo shoot that he's there but they're not trying to convince you that he like made the tequila themselves whereas in beauty her point and i can't confirm to you guys i don't know the space but i'm curious to your thoughts her point was that beauty makes the mistake of trying to fool consumers into believing that like insert celebrity here was actually like in the chemistry lab with the lab which is just not true right the rock is the fast growing spirit in history his whole brand i mean he's an enigma right but his whole brand is like the distiller made the tequila that The Rock likes to drink. So yeah. like you and I go buy Terramana because we want to feel like The Rock and drink what The Rock's drinking. Yep. But someone's not going to go buy beauty products because they think Selena Gomez made it, right? It's because for her example, which has done well, it's like they resonate with it. it. Does that hold water? Like, do you buy that argument? I do think that the beauty founders need to be more involved in the product development process. And I think it's super clear if you can tell if it's like slap a label where the, like the founder... <laughs> Just, just you slap their name on yeah. you know on the product and they have no uh uh y- you know no real say in the development process because I think it shows in the way that they speak about the products right yeah. I do think that um again I don't know the whole background of just using rare as an example but for what I have seen Selena seems to be pretty highly involved in the business. Um, not just from a marketing perspective, but from even like a product roadmap perspective and also bringing her audience along for the ride and the development of the, mm-hmm. of the line. And I, so I do actually think in beauty, um, it's, it, uh, it is an important element. Again, they're not physically making the products, right? right. But I do think their viewpoint helps um, craft and differentiate. And, I, and if they can tie their audience into the development as well, I think that's like a unique way to like bring everyone along for the ride. But I've seen a lot of brands where it's like, I think I've been seeing this lately in the men's beauty space, mm. the men's skincare space. It's like slap a label with like male celebrity tied to a crazy prestige high-end skincare line. And I'm like, where's the market for this? Mm. And I'm like, all right, this guy definitely did not make this product. Yeah, um, It was very slap a label. And they priced at such a high price point that there's not a consumer for this product at scale. Right. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, yeah it's, a good, but... it's a perfectly good answer. I mean, the authenticity is an overplayed word, but it comes back to that. Yep. Why uh, would you agree with me that Prime has been remarkably successful? Absolutely. I mean, what, I think... It's unbelievable. T- tell, us, tell us about how you see that. What do you think is making it work so well? Well, I go back to, and again, I know Logan really well. I've never, I never managed Logan. I only managed Jake. I think both of them the dividends that both of them put into their careers are now really paying off it, like anyone's career right you go back like it, it doesn't it all, it all compounds over time sure they had the early success of the internet and scale but if you really think about where have they gotten scale most of it's been in the last one to two years mm-hmm. right comparative to sure there was real scale and real dollars or you know that they were making before it's on another level in the totally. last one to two years and that's because 10 years of hard work compounded which goes for almost anyone in any other career um, but i think for prime in particular i think that they just like nailed product market fit on the category that they're in which makes complete sense for what logan's doing and what ksi is doing logan has turned into a full-scale entertainer mm-hmm. with what he's doing with wwe um, again, KSI has got the other side of the world covered. 
Um, I think they found a partner in the people that are behind the actual back end of the brand that have the infrastructure and the level of sophistication needed to build a brand at that scale super rapidly. And I mean, it's it's really impressive to see. I mean, one of the more impressive things I've seen in, in for for sure. That's going to be in, that's going to be Mount Rushmore I mean, it, of influencer brands for sure. Yeah, for sure. Super super impressive. And I think, you know, I think for the guys that partnered with Logan, the guys that are on the back end of the business. Yeah, I think one of the things that's sometimes challenging with uh, influencer led businesses is. When influencers rise super quick, you don't know if they're going to have longevity, right? Well, now the brands that are being built with these influencers that are really scaling are with influencers who have proven that they have longevity. Logan has longevity. Whatever Jake does has longevity. Um, Mr. Beast has longevity. Been around a little bit less, but I think Emma Chamberlain has proven that she has longevity. She has depth. Yeah, she has depth. She has has this uniqueness about her um, that I think is going to do really well. There's... um, there's a number of, there's a Jackie Aina who's a creator who's been around for a while who created a, a candle brand that's now doing really well in mm-hmm. retail. Um, you know, there's 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 a select few of these influencers that I think, um, you know, are going to build some really massive brands. But I think one thing is the longevity aspect. And if you are someone out there that is enticed by, you know, partnering with a creator to start a brand, yeah. you should really think about like, are they going to be around in six or seven years? Mm-hmm. Because most the way now just being in you know glamex three and a half years old inh is like four or four and a half years old old. it's not that old but when you when you really think about when does a brand start firing on on all cylinders it's in years like four five six seven eight right like great brands get built over five to ten years so if you're someone that wants to partner with a creator do you think this is what you want to spend the next five to 10 years of your life? I mean, it's a decade, right? Yeah. By, by the time Glamedic or INH is done, I would have spent like most of my 30s building these brands, right? So I better be really sure that that's where I want to spend my energy and you get one life, right? Mm. That's where I want to spend my life. So not to get too deep there, but no, I think great. you need to figure out like, is it... it in anything in life, is this what I want to spend my time on? Because time is a finite thing. Sure. Our audience with Uncharted, as I mentioned, it's a lot of advertising executives. It's a lot of marketers, CEOs, founders, investors. For those listening, how should they be thinking about the creator economy, creator-led brands, digital marketing uh, in, let's call it, May 2023 and beyond? That's a really good question. I mean, I think... I think the hardest thing about the space right now is it's it's moving so fast that what I say is going to happen in you know in May um, could be even di- you know what we're doing now could be different than what we're doing in May right yeah. so for me I think the best advice I can give is you need to be like a insane consumer of content right I'm spending so much time consuming TikTok. I'm downloading TikTok's new app, Lemonade, to like check it out and see what's going on there. Maybe it'll pop, maybe it won't pop, right? I'm like, um, I'm keeping up with like, who are the new creators in the space? Like my whole thing is, um, you know, I'm in my mid thirties, right? I have people on the team that are in their early twenties. For me to be up to speed as, as like the founder, the CEO, I wanna find these people before they do. I was on Alex Earl before some of these people were on Alex mm. Earl, right? Like for me, it's it's just having a pulse on the space. So my best advice would be rather than like very, you know, you know, you need to be doing this on TikTok, you need to be doing this. It's you have to be able to have a real pulse on the space to have 
um, the intuition to know what to do, right? So I could tell you go do Facebook Lives with influencers. Well, that might work for three months and then Facebook changes their algorithm, right? right. Everyone leaned heavy into Reels. Reels are cranking. Then influence Instagram comes out and says, well, actually, uh, we lean too heavy into Reels. Now we're going to balance it out with photos again. So it's like this um, cyclone of change that's going to continue to happen. I think um, AI is going to play uh, a undetermined part yet in like the creator economy. I don't know exactly what it's going to be. I saw on your Instagram you posted for like who can help me figure out yeah. basically – who can I pay to tell me what I should do with ChatGPT for? Yeah, I want a crash course from someone who is smarter than me at how to leverage ChatGPT around my personal life, around our business. How can I infuse the best? There, by the way, it's like the, there's lots of conversations around this, but there's lots of good things that are come from AI, lots yeah. of bad things. But for me, how can I leverage the best things about AI, yeah. infuse them into business, infuse them into my personal life? I think creator, the smart creators are going to figure out how to infuse AI into what they're doing, right? Uh, I'm sure Mr. Beast is working on some crazy shit right now with AI around how he's gonna leverage that to like 10X his business. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, I, I think I think you have to have a pulse on what is working and what's not working and the only way to do that is to put in the work and the time and consume insane amounts of content mm. to actually get there. Mm. I always love jamming with you because we just talk about so much so quickly and you're so pointed. So we've covered a lot, Brendan, how are we on time? Solid. We got through a lot. Um, anything that you want to talk about? Like, what's exciting Kevin Gould these days? What is exciting Kevin Gould these days? You know, there's there's a lot of things that excite me, but I think the one thing I've learned is you need to always be self-aware to heat check your ambition and figure out sometimes your ambition outstrips how quickly you can do the things that you're ambitious about, mm. right? So for right now, I'm pretty focused on the things that I'm building, right? So I've got Glymedic, I've got INH. Um, I have another, uh, I actually started a SaaS business called Livecom with yeah. like the whole TikTokification of e-commerce. Yeah. Brands are gonna have to shift their on-site experiences to, um, to, to be more TikTok-like, so um, you know, we've it's still early. We've got about fifty, you know, paying consumer brands what does now. Do? Tell us Basically, about that. Um, there's a few different parts, but the long-term goal is to own the entire video stack uh, for primarily e-commerce brands. Wow. So we have shoppable videos and reels where you can embed across the site as pop-ups, as PDPs. We've got on-site live streaming where a brand could live stream from their website. And then we have an API hookup for TikTok and Facebook Live, so you can stream from both. Um, so very, for very community-driven brands, it can live stream from the site. Sure. Um, and then now we're just continuing to layer in lots of other features where we want to be the go-to place for anything video on a website. We want to do it better than the other solutions out there, but we're leading, you know, the main lead product now is like the shoppable videos and reels. Sure. So I have an awesome co-founder on that, Max. And so from a day-to-day, -day, you know, across all the businesses, we have over a hundred people. So it's just a big, you know, pretty decent sized team. So just focused on keeping everyone yeah. in place. And I think the long-term goal for me is, um, again, you, you I think it's important to think big and think where you want to go, but yeah. you can't lose focus of the now. Sure. So saying that with the long-term focus is that eventually I want to, you know, buy really interesting brands that I think I can scale. I don't know if I'd ever start a brand from scratch again unless it was with a massive celebrity. Sure. Because um, I just think again, it's really hard to start from scratch. And totally. man, I'm fucking tired from starting these things. I feel you, bro. So <laughs> I think I'd rather buy. 
um, and build out a holding company over time of like really cool brands. I think I look up to entrepreneurs, um, like seeing what Michael Rubin's done with Fanatics is incredible, man. It is so cool what he's built. Or um, I don't, I, you know. He's a good example. I, yeah, I got to spend some time with a super smart guy. Yeah. Um, someone I don't know, but I think has done an amazing job is uh, Jamie Salter of Authentic Brands mm. Group, where he's been buying um, a lot of these legacy brands and assets. I think he bought Toys R Us. I saw he bought Quicksilver, all these brands, and it's kind of rolled them together in this hold co. So for me, the long-term vision is to, um, you know, to, to kind of buy and, and, and hold hopefully really cool brands. And then I think I need to do a, I also need to do a better job of figuring out how I want to like give back in the world. So I think right now I'm, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm philanthropic, but it's not like a huge, I, I only have so much, I have a finite amount of time. Sure. I think I can be a lot more impactful down the line. And so thinking through what that could be, but again, don't put the cart before the horse and like, I got to focus on the now, Yeah. but it's fun. It's fun to think about the future. You just, I just always tell people don't be a, um, don't live in the cloud, don't live too far in the clouds because then you're, you know, then you're living in dreamland and you're never going to actually execute on any of the things that get you to dreamland. I had a mentor tell me once that a lot of what you said resonates. I mean, the, the, the insecure overachiever in me is yeah. always, you know, I get to the place that I always dreamed of and then I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm not done. I got to keep pushing they said to me once that my biggest challenge is going to be balancing my ambition with impatience, Yes, which not keeping those two things in check is a recipe for crippling anxiety. For sure. For sure. It's, it's, you have to have realistic ambition. Yeah. It's so important to be ambitious and think big and, but you have to tie it back to reality. I also think that, and this goes for the individual companies, right? So that's like my personal goals and how I need to think about ambition and like tying it back to reality. I think when you run a company, a lot of times founders make critical mistakes where they have such a big vision that their team can't move quick enough to execute on it. And then you end up with one really big shit show right. um, because it's an unfocused vision that's all over the place because right. no one can execute. So I think it's important to push I, I feel like I like to, you know, push the push things and obviously like I mean that grew really quick, right? We broke some shit along the way. Of course. But I think there's a difference between breaking things and the break point where the team breaks because it's so insane that um it causes crippling anxiety to the team. You as a founder are pushing ambition, but the team is like crippled with anxiety because right. you can't possibly work that quickly. Yeah to fulfill the ambition. So mm -hmm. I just think that's really important for founders to think about. How do you keep yourself in check? How do you keep yourself balanced? If, um, you, if there is such a thing for you. I try to listen to feedback from other people. I think I kind of, I, I always try to like do a self check-in and I'm asking myself, what can I do better? What am I not being clear on? When I'm having conversations with people, what, what, did, what did I say in that conversation that maybe like didn't get through? Um, I can tell, I think you have to be very, you have to listen, right? Yeah. And you pick up on a lot of times on the surface, people people will say one thing, but you have to dig for answers to get to the real answer, right? So you may think that someone is okay, or you may think that your idea is a good idea, but when you really dig, you find out that they actually have a different perspective on it. And so I just think it takes being, um, you know, being a really good listener, being self aware. Letting your ego 
not get in the way. Everyone has an ego, and I think it's good to have elements of your ego that instill confidence, yeah. but not cockiness, mm. right? Um, so I know there's a lot of different things, but for me, that's that's what I try to do. I will say one of the things that I respect most about you is that your your background and your business is grounded in this entertainer creator economy, which can be fraught with bullshit and ego and insecurity and people spinning all these stories. And you are, I know you as a friend, you are unbelievably, you have this humility to you. You have a you're anchored, you have your head screwed on straight, you're empathetic, and I think it's increasingly rare to find someone as authentic as you. Um, mm-hmm. You can just call and ask for advice and, and just be a friend in the world that you're in, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that you're so successful, so I wanna commend yeah. you on that. And uh, I appreciate yeah, it, man, same I'm, same. I'm grateful to, to know you. Same. So, Kevin, uh, where can people find you? Where can they find your brands? Give the audience, um, give the, audience the Kevin Spiel. Sure. So the brands, um, Glamedics and Ulta and Sephora, or you go on our .com. Um, so we're available there. INH is available in Ulta. And then our, our .com is just inhair.com. And then for me personally, um, you can reach out to me on Instagram. It's just at Kevin G uh, or hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, I'm a big fan of voice memos. So if you hit me up, I, uh, I usually hit people back with voice memos. I think yeah. it's a great way to deliver. You use voice memos more than anyone. I love voice oh, memos. Some people I, hate them. I think I, they're the best. I know. It's, I, it's such a it's such a split thing. But I, I personally love them because it's a great way to convey context yeah. in a short amount of time. Just you can't leave someone like a four-minute voice memo. There's like a rule, like keep it under 40 seconds. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if people want to reach out to me, hit me up there. Um, try to get back to people. And uh, yeah. Cool. It. For the audience, if you want to talk about Kevin's brands, if you want to partner, if you want Kevin's help with e-com, he's my go-to guy. Um, hit him up. Can't say enough good things about him. Mm-hmm.